he, I sat down with him finally. He told me a little bit like, Hey, you gotta stop doing that single panel stuff. Like multi-panel, that's where you should be. And so we sat down, he, he, he said, Hey, look, I know you're making a, our, our average return on multi on single family is like 42% cash on cash return, like crazy returns. Right. And so I thought that was it. Right. I found the magic button and he said, uh, he, he really like put me in my place and he told me, well, yeah, you're getting 42% on your $10,000 investments. Great. Really great. But what if you could do 20 or 25% on a, on a $10 million building, that's going to be a lot more valuable to you can see where you want to be faster. And so that's really what, and that made sense to me. So that's really when we decided to switch to multifamily. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on Ruben Dominguez. Ruben is the founder and principal of Totem Capital Group. Ruben spent over 12 years as an IT leadership roles, and most recently, he was an executive for a software-as-a-service company where he was able to successfully grow and exit the company. Ruben lives in San Antonio with his wife, April, and they have three children, and today we're going to talk about things he looks for when he's looking at a multifamily deal. So I'm going to stop right there and say, Ruben, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on, Matt. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? This is going to sound really boring. But honestly, my favorite ice cream is vanilla. <laughs> so that actually is probably the number one answer we've gotten so far. Really? That's yep. so funny. Yeah. I just like, I like to put things in the vanilla ice cream, but like, I find like that's a good base. And then I can add things into it. Like when you get fancy with all these other flavors and there's, I've tried a lot of flavors and my kids like all these different flavors. It's like when I add something, it just doesn't do it for me. So I, I like to start with that base and add things into it. I like it. Well, tell us some of your favorite toppings then. Oh my gosh, nuts, almonds, peanuts, walnuts, all the nuts are my favorite toppings. And I know it's, but whipped cream, I love whipped cream. Mango, I really love mango on my ice cream. It's so good. Yeah. I like it. I like it. I like fruit and nuts. I think like the crunch in an ice cream gives it the extra pizzazz that it needs. So good. You know, it's actually really good. Crush up some cornflakes and try that in your vanilla ice cream. It's good. Okay. <laughs> I, I know what I'm having for dinner tonight. Love well, it. Ruben. Tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So lots of things. Um, Number one is we buy multifamily, larger multifamily, 150 plus, depends sometimes a little smaller. Anything that we can make sure we get full-time staff on that property. We we like to buy those. And um, we're buying in the South Texas area, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, a little bit farther south also. And then we also, um, so that's our main thing that we do. We also have a a coaching program where we teach people this business. And we also have a commercial real estate brokerage um, here in Texas. So lots of things, super busy. Um, It's a lot of fun though. I'm having a lot of fun. Definitely. Nice. Buying, selling, investing, and then coaching all in one. Correct. Yes. And they're kind of all businesses that kind of, you know, it's all one thing, multifamily and commercial real estate. So they kind of fit together and they're all those businesses are all started by necessity because yep. we needed to do it. We're like, well, why don't we just start a business since we're, we're paying all this money for things. Why don't we just create our own business and then get clients and treat our clients really well too. So. I like it. Well, I want to dig in there. Uh, but before we get there, tell our listeners, where'd your real estate journey begin? So I was in the corporate world 
Uh, I think you mentioned this in the intro, but uh, I was in IT. I worked for a big IT company, publicly traded, uh, that were headquartered here out of San Antonio. And um, I found that I was working 60 hours a week. I, I was, it was great. I was making a, a very good salary. I had great benefits, um, except my job was really stressful. And it was a lot of hours. And then I started traveling and we had an international, I got put in charge of some international teams and I was traveling to London once a quarter for two weeks. So that was like a long time. It was like a quarter of my life I spent in London for a couple of years. And um, it was tough. I would get home and I'd see my kids and my wife would tell me all the cool things they did all day. And I was like, this is terrible. I missed all that. Like, and you can't get those times back. Like, honestly, I can't get that back. And I said, what are we doing this for? Is this for all the things or the, you know, we have bills coming in a house and cars and it's like, it's gotta be a better way. So I started looking for an alternative to like replace my income. And I'd always had this entrepreneurial mindset and I tried a lot of things, just I couldn't find the right vehicle. And so um, I, I had a buddy of mine. I saw him one day post on Facebook, he kept posting rental house, another rental house, another rental house. Like, what is this guy doing? He works a corporate job like I do. And so I, uh, I started, I met with him and uh, I started buying single family. So we did the birth strategy. It's before the birth, it's probably 2010. So before the birth strategy was something, um, but the same thing, like we'd buy it, we'd, re, we'd rehab it, we'd refinance it. In 2010, and I'm in San Antonio, it was, you could find deals everywhere. You could find great deals everywhere. And so I did that for a long time and deals started to get tighter. So and we actually ran out of we ran out of money to go up because you have to buy you have to put some money in each one of these houses. So we ran out of money, started flipping houses to make money, and I was buying deals from wholesalers. And I saw their fees go up and up and up, and our deals started to get less and less profitable. And so we thought, why don't we go out and find? Why don't we directly market to homeowners and we'll start doing this and we'll cherry pick the ones we want to flip or we want to hold buy and hold in. So. We started this whole entire wholesaling thing, and we can get into that later if you have questions on it, but uh, we had this big wholesaling business that we kept for buying a bunch of houses and for flips and rentals and selling the ones we didn't want. And um, we did that for a long time. I think in 2016, I looked back and said, I was still working my corporate job, and now I was working 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, because I'd get up early before anyone was up, go to a house that we were flipping, make sure that the contractor was doing their work, or there's a lot of things you deal with when you're flipping. And then we talk about, I talk to my my staff, because we had this big wholesaling thing, I'm like, how are calls going? How's marketing going? How's door knocking going? And so my my any free time I had was spent like these real estate business, and I was nowhere near quitting my job and actually missing more time with the family now because my weekends were not now occupied and evenings and very stressful as well. And so I said, there's gotta be an alternative just like I did six years before with the, with the corporate job. And uh, that same friend that got me in a single family hit switched to multifamily at that point. So he was, uh, he, I sat down with him finally. He told me a little bit like, hey, you got to stop doing that single family stuff, like multi-family. That's where, that's where you should be. And so we sat down. He, he, he said, hey, look, I know you're making a, our, our average return on multi on single family is like 42% cash on cash return, like crazy returns, right? And so I thought that was it, right? I found the magic button. 
And he said, uh, he, he really like put me in my place and he told me, well, yeah, you're getting 42% on your $10,000 investments. Great. It's really great. But what if you could do 20 or 25% on a, on a $10 million building? That's going to be a lot more valuable to you can see where you want to be faster. And so that's really what, and that made sense to me. So that's really when we decided to switch to multifamily. And we switched and within probably 18 months of switching over, I was able to quit my job just enough income, or I could at least see the road to enough income coming in, which I could never do with single family. And we tried, we really tried to scale that business and I could never do that, but I could see the income that was going to come in. And we were, I was able to quit my corporate job at that point. And it was, uh, it was still scary. And people ask me all the time, like, Oh, was it easy for it? It's like, it was not easy. It was very scary. And I even questioned after I quit question, like, uh, is this going to work? Do I need to go back? And so uh, it was a tough time, but uh, I'm really glad that I made that decision to do that because it's been probably the best thing that I've ever done in my whole life. That's, it's awesome. I want to pick out a couple of things from that. So first of all, the Burr strategy, just to define that for anybody that doesn't know, that's buy, rehab, rent, refinance. And for me, that's been the best deal I've ever done, deals I've ever done, because essentially what you're doing is refinancing out your initial capital and then reusing it in another property. So I've got a property now where I've I've zero dollars actually in it and it cash flows $450 a month. That's not enough to make me go fly to first class to Dubai or anything like that. But at the same time, I have $0 in that deal. So the return is infinite. What kind of returns were you seeing on your burrs at that time? Our average return was about 42% uh, year one. So if we put 10K in, we get $4,200 back on year one. And then of course it was cash flowing as yep. well and appreciating we were, our tenants were paying the mortgage down. It was great. Uh, I didn't calculate, we sold them all actually uh, last year in July, we sold our last one. And so I'm not sure that I didn't go back and calculate the returns, but I can guarantee you the returns would be super high because yeah. the market in Texas has gone crazy since we, we bought them all in the sixties, seventies and eighties. Right. And we sold them all in the 200 to $300,000 range. So like wow. crazy returns on those. And it was over a period. It was, it was some of them we bought in 2012 and 2013. So it was, uh, we kept them for a while, but yeah, it was great returns, great returns. And like I said, the returns are going to be the best on those family deals. Multifamily can't touch those returns. The difference is multifamily, the returns smaller, but it's on a lot. There's a lot more zeros. And so it, it just made sense for us. Yeah. And what I've seen is we have similar stories where I started in single family, did a couple burrs, did a couple flips, and then I actually didn't move into wholesaling. And I kind of want to talk about that for a second, but I, I saw the light as well around your returns are higher in single family because your time is more involved in that. And so one conversation that I'm really trying to have with a lot of folks right now is return on intentionality versus return on investment. So are you being more intentional with your time? In your story, you were talking about you were working 60 hours a week to 80 to 90 and missing some of those moments in your kid's life as they're growing. And that's not being intentional with the people that you love. So all the money in the world doesn't solve that problem. So I love that hearing that that you were able to kind of make that switch. Um, but I want to talk about the wholesaling. So you mentioned that you got into wholesaling. As somebody that works in sales today, First of all, define what wholesaling is and then talk to us a little bit about everything that goes involved into wholesaling. Sure. Oh, so much. We have, we have a two-hour show. <laughs> well, so wholesaling is you go to direct to homeowners, you market to them, 
And you've probably seen the signs, we buy houses cash, like we'll close on it in, in seven days or less, things like that. Uh, those companies just wholesale. So you go out and you get the property under contract. So they sign us a, a sale contract with you in your name or your company's name. And then you can sell that contract or your interest in the contract to a third party. Now, depending on your state, you got to check with some attorneys because this is not legal in every state. It is in Texas where we're from. So uh, be careful when you're going out there. Don't just go do that. You need to talk to people that are right. If you're out there trying to wholesale, um, but it's basically you're going to sell that your interest in that contract. It could be 10,000, 20,000. Our biggest one was like $90,000. It's called an assignment fee. I'm going to sell this to a contract to somebody else. And then they're going to close on that. So you really have very little money in it. Uh, and it sounds great, right? And it is like the money's great. It's just, they're very difficult to find. You're dealing with a lot of sad stories because no one that we ever bought their house from that needs to sell cash. There's a reason why they can't sell it on the market. It's either it's, it needs a lot of repair. It's a scary situation. They had a death in the family. Always a very sad story. Um, but really, you know, it's, it's, it's going out there and, and it's market. It's really a marketing business. You're going to market. You're not going to convince somebody to sell their house, uh, you know, for 50 cents on the dollar. You're finding the people that want to sell their house at 50 cents. And there's reasons that they want to do that. So it's really trying to find those people. And you got to spend a lot of time and money to find those people. And, um, you know, it used to be we'd spend $1,000 on some mailers and get four houses under contract. And that turned into that same number took $20,000 to get a couple houses under contract. So, uh, and our margins became thinner and thinner. It used to be our average was 10K assignment fee. And then it went to eight and then six and then finally three. And uh, it was just like this huge, and they had this huge marketing machine to go out and do that. And with thin margins like that, it's a lot of work and a lot of sad stories, honestly. Like uh, every time I went to a house that we buy it, it's like, man, this is a very sad story. And so uh, just a lot of work. So for yeah. anyone that's out there looking to get in wholesaling, it can be a great business. It's just very, it's a very difficult business to, to scale and to make work. Yeah, and I and definitely people- not recommend it. If you're not like, if you're looking for an alternative to a job, that is just going to be a second job for you. And it's actually more stressful and harder and more expensive and more risky than going and just getting a corporate job. So I always tell people to try to steer away from that uh, and do something else. There's better alternatives out there. Yeah. I, I mean, if you have little money and you want to get started and you want an active job, it's a great place to start, in my opinion, because you could go door knock without needing any kind of marketing dollars and find distressed buyers but you're going to get the door slammed in your face a lot. And you're going to have to go knock on a lot of doors to find few deals. The one thing that kind of deterred me away from wholesaling is I do work an active job. I have a personal life and commitments that I'm trying to respond to as well. And the idea of every time the phone rings, you need to answer it because you paid for that phone to ring. And if you don't answer it, they're probably going to call the next person that's been marketing to them too. It, it just didn't feel right to me. Now, again, it works for a lot of people and there are a lot of people making a killing out there doing it. It just totally. wasn't right for me going back to the return on intentionality. Totally. Same. And that was... It was just so much work and less time with my family. And I know some people that are very successful in that business and they've built big businesses around it. It's just, I really struggled to build systems. And, and then I look at what I've done with multifamily and it's, it's 1% of the time and much, much more scalable. Like I can spend my time, a lot more time, like 
designing my own life. Like now I can be home. I, I'm, I be, I'm home every day at four o'clock when my kids get home. Cause I've got 20 minutes for them to download their whole day to me. And I want to know about that stuff. Cause it used to be, I get home at nine o'clock at night. Most of them were in bed. Maybe the older one was up. And then he, I'd ask him questions. He wouldn't want to talk about it because he's already been home for hours and he's already told my wife about everything that happened at school. And so now it's my time is freed up. I still work a ton, but it's on my time when I want to work. Yep. So I get, I can go work out in the morning. If I don't want to start my day till 10 o'clock, then cool. As long as I get my stuff done. And with wholesale, it's like, you're right. If the phone rings, you're picking it up. Yep. Or you have somebody else picking it up. And man, that that's a tough job because most people are mad at you because you sent them a letter or you knocked on their door or you called them or you text them or whatever it was. And they're just there to yell at you and you get a lot of turnover because your employees don't like it either. And your employees aren't going to spend it. They, they don't know how much you're spending on that lead. And so they're not going to be as careful with the call as you would be. And yep. that's a little frustrating too. Yeah. So let's talk about your shift to multifamily. And one thing I want to talk about to kind of intro this conversation is I think multifamily is more of a team sport than single family. Single family, you can kind of run things on yourself. I mean, you do have to pull in contractors and originators and bankers and things like that. But for the most part, you're kind of running it yourself. Multifamily is a team sport. So talk to us about the transition, how you found your tribe, your team to work with and and that move forward. Sure. So my buddy, right? He was the guy. And most people that I know get into multifamily this way. So that he needed some help with, because they're big multi-million dollar deals, right? I, that my first deal was a 258 unit apartment complex. And it was him stretching. My, it was my buddy's stretch to go from, I think he'd bought a, started with like a 20 unit and then he bought a hundred unit. And this is like his third deal. And it was a stretch for him. It's a big, a big capital raise. There's a lot to do. And he wanted some help marketing it. He wanted some help putting together some documents for it and then some help bringing some capital to the deal. And so he said, Hey, I know you've been in, you've been in single family a long time. Maybe you can, you can come on board and help me with this. And so um, I came on board with him. He had some experience doing that. So I learned a lot like on these calls, on the lender calls, listening to um, what was happening on that stuff and how they look at numbers, how they acquire things. And so huge learning curve for me. I had a small piece of that property, right? A little bit of equity, but I learned so much. And that's why I always recommend for people that get in, like jump on somebody's team that has experience and you're going to learn a lot about what, what they do and how to do this business by doing that. And that's how most people get started. And I did that a few times before I went out and did my own deal. And now, you know, I've got the experience and track record that I can now confidently go out there and build my own team, right? So we... And you're right. Like it's a team sport. I have a lot of people on the team that help us. Uh, it's, I don't, I don't actually know anyone that does it on their own. They either have a team or staff that help them get these things done. Cause it's such a huge, but it's okay. You're not splitting 15 K that you would make on a flip between three people. It's multi-million dollar transactions and there's enough equity to go around to make everyone feel like they're, they're winning on the deal. And so that's what I love about multifamily. It's, it's, and I love working with a team. I think it's great. I have a partner that we're doing a lot of deals together. His, his skill set is complementary to mine. And so we work really well together. And that's not something that I could ever find in the single family world. It's like, it's, it's me, man. I'm the guy. And I have staff and I hired staff, but I didn't have somebody that's a partner that I could rely on to like help me do some things. So it's just a whole different ballgame. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about the deals that you've done or that you're the market you're looking at? And what I'm really trying to squeeze out here is we're in a, a competitive market right now. And I think having a well-defined buy box that you're looking for helps with your broker relations and helps to get deals done. What does your buy box look like? You talked about South Texas. Maybe talk to us about some of the markets or some of the things you're looking for in a deal. Absolutely. And we do have that type buy box that you say, because so important before you approach a broker, you better know that because you can't just say, Hey, send me multi-panel. It's like, well, is it class A, B, C, D? What, where is it? How much is it? How much capital can you raise? So ours is pretty tight. It's class B and C multifamily and it's in San Antonio, Houston, Austin, Corpus Christi. I would look at something in some of the other markets in Texas, but it's not really where we look. Um, and we're looking in San Antonio, for instance, it's going to be in the Northeast, Northwest, North Central areas. Uh, we aren't really looking at anything on the deep East or West side or South side. Um, and so our brokers know that and we're also looking at 150 to 400 unit properties. So we know comfortably that we can go out and raise capital, close that because that's very important. You never want to get in a deal and you can't close it because you've got one shot with that broker to, to uh, make the deal close. If you can't, you're going to be known as the guy that can't close deals and good luck winning another deal. And so we're very careful with that. Um, and we're also looking for some type of value add and they're very difficult to find. And so value add means there's probably some renovations we need to do on some of the units, um, probably interior renovations, right? We're buying things that are 1980s assets, 1970s assets and a lot of times uh, we're buying one now, it's got 123 units, only 16 of them have been updated. Uh, and the update wasn't that great. So we're gonna go in there and make them really nice. And then we're gonna update the ones that haven't been updated. And uh, and the rents will go up because of that. And then we'll increase the value of the property because of that. So really that's what we're looking at. Our brokers know this, when we go to the brokers, they know exactly what we're looking for. So when that deal hits the plate, they know, oh, that's a buyer I need to take this to. And a lot of times, not the last, not the one we're closing now, but the last two we bought, those deals were brought to us from a broker, not on market. They said, hey, I know you have a good reputation to close. I know you'll close on time and you won't retrade. Retrade means ask for a discount at the very last minute. We know you're not going to do that. So if you can make this number work, we can get this deal done. And so that's the last two previously that we purchased was because of that reputation. Super important yeah. in multifamily. I agree. And I love that it's it's important to know what you want in life, but I think it's equally as important if you don't know what you want, that you know what you don't want. And so when you were talking through this, it's like, hey, we're looking at Austin, San Antonio, Corpus Christi, and Houston. What we definitely don't want is South, Far East, Far West of San Antonio. And I think that just helps you make better decisions. And your, and your brokers, like you mentioned, brought two to you because they knew exactly what you wanted and that you were a buyer for this particular product. So thank you for that. I, I want to talk through, you mentioned value add and um, value add means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You mentioned this deal that you're currently working on has 120 so odd units and 116 of them were done, but weren't done great. How do you prioritize what you look at when you're looking at a value add? Are you looking at interior? If so, what's prioritized in the interior? If you're looking at exterior, what's prioritized on the exterior? Um, so we always prioritize whatever is going to bring us a return on the investment. Normally, that's not exterior. Uh, exterior is something you have to do. It's real hard to tie a return on that investment to an actual like your 
your numbers, right? Like I can't say it, painting the building is going to get me X amount of dollars. Like that's hard. But interior, I can tell you exactly. If I put granite in this unit, I can get an extra $85 per unit in rent because that's what the market's paying right now. And so if I do that to these number of units, that transcends to X amount of dollars per year and that's X amount of NOI. So I love to do that because that's a really easy one. Now we will do the exterior stuff because we have to, right? And, and I think our our strategy is, is pretty simple. It's like, we want to give uh, experience to our tenants or our potential tenants, right? When they're driving up to the property, you want it to look nice, right? Clean, nice, secure, because people want that. And as they drive through, you want to come into the office. Office, We're going to spend some money on the office renovation one. So, because that's the first impression, right? If the office looks bad. The units probably are going to look worse, right? Because that's where that's where your staff is. That's the initial impression. So we spend some money on office renovations every single time. We'll make it look really nice. And our staff's important. We use a great property management team that um, they do. It's actually owner-owned. So they're an owner also that owns this property management company. So their metrics are more aligned to what ours are. And so when you experience, it's like the, the staff's going to be look nice, look sharp, be dressed really nice, offer you beer or wine when you go in there or, or drink. And that experience is going to be great. They're going to take you every single time and show you a model unit. And on your way to the model unit, we're going to have lots of nice landscaping. Make sure it looks nice. Make sure there's no loud dogs barking, things that are going to detract from the experience. And then you get to the model. Model is going to look beautiful. And we want that model to look a lot like the unit that you're going to purchase, you're going to rent, right? And so we spend some money on the model. And we always have a model. I know some operators out there, they don't have a model. It's like, we want people to see, and we want people on a waiting list. So if somebody decides, hey, I'm, I don't want my unit, here's 10 people that we can throw in there. And so uh, we spend some money on that. It's real hard to tie back to an ROI. But what we've seen from experience is that really helps us fill these things up fast and make sure that the units we are spending money on get filled because that's what you want to do is you want to fill those up as soon as you can. And so that's really the strategy with that is make sure yeah. that we have that whole experience. I love how you talked about the whole experience. When you mentioned the the dog, I never even thought about that. Like, okay, we'll allow pets, but they have to be away from the walk from the office to our model unit. Like that's genius. And I never would have thought of that. So um, how are you, one of the questions I have for a lot of operators right now is how are you navigating the supply chain issues and the labor shortages right now? Any best practices or tips that you could offer us there? Yes. So it's been tough. Our average rehab on a classic to what we call Legante style unit. It's just a name that we use for our more premium. It went from $3,800 to $7,800 over the Whoa. last about year. Yeah, it's been huge. Not only that, but it's taking us six to nine months to get appliances. So it's tough, very tough. So the, what we're doing now is when we're looking at properties, we are actually looking for properties that have some mid-tier renovations. And what I mean by mid-tier is they probably did the floor. They probably did the appliances, but you probably have um, either resurface surfaces like countertops, and you have maybe some old lighting packages, some old plumbing packages. Maybe the vanities are older and we can replace the, the old single mirror and we can put some nice things on there. So you um, what we've been finding in the market is people, because they're working from home more, they're willing to pay a little bit more for a premium type of use. So stone countertops, nice lighting fixtures, nice plumbing fixtures, because they're home all day. Larger units also are a very good strategy right now. Uh, and so what we're doing is we're taking the mid-tier renovations. If we don't have to replace appliances or flooring, 
It's a lot less expensive, $3,200 now. And we can get that done cheaper, but still get the same rents that we could if we were going from classic to premium. So we're spending less getting the same rents. And so the one we bought, we closed on one in February. We're in May, end of May now. Um, that one had 170 units and 84 of them are classic and the rest were mid-tier renovations. So we looked at classic, but that was going to cut our budget was way over budget. We couldn't make the numbers work. And when we were walking the property, we said, well, a lot of these are like, they're kind of renovated, but they just don't, they don't have that. It doesn't look pop. that great. So that experience, right? And so we, we wanted that pop and said, how much would it cost to turn these to the pop? And it's like $3,200 a unit. Well, let's do that. And we actually have more that we can renovate now and get that same rent bump. So uh, we're going to, and then I'll, the, the benefit of that, now we have another 80 units that when we sell it, we can tell the next guy, hey, there's 80 something classic units. Y'all can, you can make look better and let them spend the money. So we got a good exit strategy on our property too. So kind of change our strategy looking into, now we're looking for properties with mid-tier renovations that we can go out and take down. Is, is that one of your strategies too, is to keep some units available for the next buyer to do some value add strategy to make the appeal of your exit strategy look good? On that particular asset, yes. Um, not on all of them. So gotcha. we have some where we're not. Um, what, it depends on the floor plans. Um, two ones, well, we don't usually do two ones because it's an unpopular floor plan. You got two bedrooms, so you're renting it, probably not to roommates, you're probably renting it to somebody that needs like an office or something. And so it's a harder unit to, to get your return on investment on because it might stay vacant longer. And so what we'll normally do is not do those, and then we'll send that to the next guy that maybe not doesn't have that strategy. But it is a good strategy to leave some meat on the bone because you want your exit most people are doing what we're doing, right? We're raising money for these projects and they're syndicators. They're going to go out and raise some capital and they need some type of value add so they can pass on some returns to their investors. If not, you're dealing with like institutional type of buyers that just want to put park some cash somewhere or maybe you're hoping for a 1031 exchange person. So it's harder to sell when you go to look to exit and we're buying class B and C and most institutions, they want something nicer, newer and cleaner. It's going to be class A or B probably. And so we do try to leave some meat on the bone um, for the next guy. Doesn't mean we do that all the properties, but we do try to do that because we think about exit for sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, earlier in the show, you mentioned that you also have a brokerage arm inside of your company as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about one, why you decided to start up a brokerage uh, 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 arm with inside of your company? And then two, why you haven't done that yet? It doesn't sound like you've done that yet with uh, property management. Sure. Yes. So the brokerage arm was started because I was underwriting 70 deals a month, something crazy like that. Not only was I doing that, but my business partner on the brokerage, he was underwriting the same amount of stuff. And then every one of our coaching members was also doing the same thing. And we're all looking at the same markets, right? If you're in Texas, you're looking at the same markets we're looking at. And so it was overwhelming uh, we weren't doing a good job of it. We would let things fall off our plate, right? If there was 75 things to underwrite that month, we weren't doing the five because we just have a limited amount of time. And so we thought about hiring an underwriter. Let's just hire someone that can underwrite for us all the time. And that would have been great. But if you're in multifamily, you know that underwriting is like this much of getting the deal done, right? It's underwrite it. 
it's never going to be the price you want, right? You're going to be here. They're going to want to be here. And so you got that gap. It's all about the follow-up. Just like in any sales thing, it's going to be about the follow-up. So you call the broker, hey, I'm at 20 million. I know you guys want 24 million. Tell me a little bit how that goes. And then two weeks later, call them back. Hey, did that trade? Did you trade at 24? No, we're not there. We're, you guys are at 20. Hey, if you could come up to like 22, eh, we're still far off. And so that follow-up, eventually, maybe it's going to be three months, maybe six months down the line, you're going to follow up and that place is still going to be for sale. And the brokers might be talking to the seller like, hey, we're getting offers at 20. And so we, we realized like most of our deals are coming on the follow-up, right? 80% of them we're getting on the follow-up. And so we need to be following up on those properties with brokers. So that's tough. You got to do that. And then once you get an LOI signed, closing that thing, it's going to be 45 to 90 days of a lot of things happening. And that's when your most amount of work is going to happen on any deal when you're trying to acquire that property. And I know, you know, like it's a lot of stuff, lender calls and getting people out there, due diligence. And it's just a lot of little tasks you need to do. So we're like, why don't we hire someone that can help us do that? Also get it to the finish line. It's hard to get it to the finish line. It's very difficult. And so in Texas, that's a and somebody that's helping you conduct a transaction is a licensed agent. <laughs> yeah, it's a legal way to do it. It's like you need a licensed agent, right? That's somebody helping you transact a real estate activity. And so we said, why don't we just hire a, some a broker that can do this for us? Uh, I'm not a I'm not a broker. My business partner's not, but there's a way to do it in Texas it's called LC Brokerage. If anyone's interested, you can reach out. I'll tell you how to do it. It's not too difficult. Um, so we hired someone that can help us do that. So she's actually helping us on the buy side, which is a little bit different. You don't see people doing that, but it's been very cool. And I, all of our clients, we have a ton of clients, a lot more than we thought we would. They're all really happy with it because it's hard. It's hard getting it from, I'm going to submit, I'm going to underwrite a bunch. Of, when you first start, you underwrite a bunch of stuff, but it's tough when you underwrite a bunch of things. You make 10 offers a month and none of them get accepted because you're too far off. And you got to follow up with those. And then the next month you do the same thing. You got to follow up with those. And it becomes this massive amount of work. Um, most people will send the LOI. It won't work and they'll never follow up. And so that's where the mistake is. Like you got to follow up because that's where you're going to get your deals. A good deals come on the follow-up. And so it's been cool because now we're, we have this great reputation of bringing a lot of very qualified buyers that the brokers now know in San Antonio, at least Houston's different, but in San Antonio, they know that if we have a buyer that we're putting this, we're putting this deal in front of them, they're going to be able to close and they're not going to retrade. They're not, they're going to be able to raise the money. So they're going to be able to close. And so we've got a great reputation. Now. So we're getting a lot of really good inbound properties from that brokerage uh, and for our clients. So it's been, it's been super cool. And also on the sales side now, because right when you're buying something from us now, they're like, Hey, you can sell this too. And so it's been, it's been pretty cool. So that's really why we started. Like we started because we needed it. And so we kind of transitioned to this company. Yeah. It's about property management. The reason I don't do it is because my business partner in the brokerage, actually, he did that. He started a property management company uh, and we've just been using him. And the thought of me going out and trying to do one other business, is just like, I'll just, I'll just pay him and his company. And I really like the way they run things because he's an owner operator. And so their metrics are like NOI, like finding a property management company that they have an NOI metric, it's really tough. And so that's his metrics. We're one of two third-party clients that he's taken on. I guess at some point, maybe we would look at that, but not anytime soon. We're, we're really focused on acquiring right now. 
instead of like trying to start a property management company. Yeah. I mean, it's property management. It's its own unique skill set in itself. And what I find is that I have, I've, I don't think I've had anybody on the show yet that's done it fully successfully all in. There's people that dabble in it, but they really haven't figured it out. Um, I've talked to plenty of people that buy and have a brokerage firm, but they not many people have the property management. So I was curious about that. Yeah, it seems just like it's such a different business, such a different business from what we do. He really, my business partner, he really started his property management company because it was the right person. So he right. had the person... And it was the right time, the right person. He said, oh, I think I need to do this. We can transition all of our properties to this person, really, and that we can build a business around them. And so that's really why he did it. Uh, otherwise, I don't think he would have done that because it's just the undertaking seems massive. And I know the same thing. I know a lot of operators that have property management companies, and uh, it's tough. It's a tough business. I, I, one, one guy I can think about is like, like, we're not profitable yet. It's like, you guys have a lot of doors and you're not profitable. It doesn't sound like something I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> sounds really yep. tough. Yeah. It's very time and labor intensive too, for a small yeah. margin. Um, one of the things I, I wanted to pull out of the previous conversation though, was that you mentioned that you send all your underwriting to your coaching students as well, to give them some of that full hands-on experience. Um, can you talk to a, a, us a little bit about everybody in this business has had coaching along the way or all the successful ones? How has that helped you grow having somebody that has been a mentor and coached you along the way, as well as some of your students that get that handoff on the experience? How has that helped them grow? So that's, that's so important. I mean, having someone that's actually been successful at something that you want to do. I mean, that is, that is so key. And then also there's a whole thing around just being around people that are doing these deals. Like it's like, if you're in the room with five guys that about multifamily and you're always with them, you're going to be the next guy. It's just, just mm -hmm. how it works. It's like by osmosis, almost like it's just going to happen. And, um, and the, you've heard that thing surround yourself with the people that you want to do what they do. Right. And so if they're successful and so that has been a huge part of it. And I know every time, and I'm not, I'm in coaching programs now, like I spend money on that because I know I'm going to get value out of that. Uh, even if it's just a relationship I make in that coaching program, that's going to bring me to a deal. Like that's totally worth it. So I don't mind spending money on coaching. For our students, the same thing, right? They're in a room with people that are doing these deals. And we have this mastermind thing every couple of weeks for our members. And it's really about, and what I see is the people that are in that room are the people that are doing deals or brand new people. And so I know if a brand new person can stick in that room for a while, they're going to end up being the next guy that does a deal because they're around that. And it's kind of like acclimating yourself to doing that multi-million dollar transaction. For me, when, I remember when I first heard of doing a multi-million dollar, I'd been doing 200K average like deals. And to think about buying a $20 million building was so far off from my thinking that it was it was just not something I could ever thought I would do, right? I thought it was big companies buying these deals. And so part of that whole coaching thing is just transitioning your mindset into like, Hey, if that guy can do it, I always tell people that like, if I can do this, anyone can do this because I'm not special at all. And so it was just, I was able to get into a group of people that were doing it. And I just picked it up by osmosis. And I was like, Hey, if that guy can do it, I can do it. And it seems more believable. And now that sounds kind of Tony Robbins and dream board and all that stuff, but it's so true. And I'm not that kind of guy. It was like the anti-Tony Robbins guy, right? Like, Oh, that's just all BS. Like that, that doesn't really happen. But now it's like, no, I really do believe like there's, there's something to that. And so I tell people all the time, like 
just get in a room with people. Even if you don't join a coaching program, go to as many conferences as you can. Just surround yourself with those people that are doing deals because that's going to make it believable for you. And you're going to go out and probably do a deal after that. And so and now, uh, now you own a company huge. that does those deals. Exactly. Exactly. So kind of crazy how that works, but uh, any advice for people are like, you got to surround yourself with those people. It's yeah. super, super important as yeah. much as Agreed. possible. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I'm going to switch us now into our last uh, round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first topping is what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently? That's given you a paradigm shift. Gosh, I have so many books that I love. Um, I just reread a book recently called Pitch Anything. I don't know if you've read it. It's Orrin Claff. I haven't, but I've heard. So, yeah. Yes, it's it's great. Um, it's really about um, how people process information, right? And so based on some science. And so there's these levels of process. And when you're creating something, like if you're trying to raise money for an apartment complex, you're coming from a high level thought of, here's this deal, here's how the returns are amazing, and here's how we're going to do this whole project. That's a very high-level, intricate thought. And when you're trying to talk to somebody that's looking at your deal, they have to get through fight-or-flight response first. So the way you approach that conversation, and this is with anything, it doesn't have to be with raising money or selling something, it's any thought process, right? That's the first level of thought process whoever you're talking to is going to go through. It's like fight-or-flight response first, and then through another part of your brain. And then finally they get to this high level thinking. And that's when people actually make these decisions to either invest with you or buy whatever you're selling or whatever it is, right? You're trying to convince somebody of something. And so that book's good to kind of talk about that and some of the strategies and some of the different personalities that you'll come across uh, when you're talking to people. And it's been super helpful for me, especially raising money. And he is a money raiser on this book. So um, super cool to listen to that and, and use some of that. And um I think it's a great book for anyone that's that's out there trying to convince somebody to do something. Yeah, I think everybody's selling something. Whether you're selling your exactly. partner on taking out the trash or you're selling a multi-million dollar apartment complex, everybody's selling something. So I'll definitely exactly. have to check that out. Exactly. Our, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits and the things that you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? Um, work out, spend time with my kids, eat right. Uh, and I didn't used to do that stuff and I was, you know, I was eating bad and I was not spending a lot of time here and I was, uh, not working out. And since I started doing that, my life's been so much better and I want to be here for a while. So, and I have kids, I want to be here for them for a while. So it's like, I got to do that stuff now to keep myself here. So, uh, those are some of the things I do. I always also, you know, try to be grateful for what I have, because I think that's so important to be grateful for what you have, whether it's, you know, you're not running a multi-million dollar company. That's okay. Like you have things, you have a roof over your head, you got food, you have shelter, you probably have a family like that. You should be grateful for that stuff. So um, those are some of the things, there's a ton of them, um, but uh, those are some of the most important ones to me. Agreed. Being fit and being grateful are the two things that I think are most important. Yes, definitely. Our, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh man, I think probably, and this goes back to the corporate world, is leave a positive impact on as many people as you can. And that's whether it's and and be respectful of whoever it is, right? You can always learn something from somebody. It doesn't matter who they are. Um, and a lot of people I see out there, you know, they might treat a server at a restaurant bad just because they're a server. And that's 
horrible, right? Horrible. I always try to make that person's life a little bit happier. Hopefully if I can even just like make them smile by saying their name, like recognizes the person in front of you, like they have a name, they have a life, they have a story. And so I always try to take a genuine interest in people like that and just, Hey, how's your day going? Right. You're a server. Maybe no one's asked that person how their day's going. So trying to leave a positive impact on people's life. And I learned that from a mentor a long time ago. And uh, I really took that to heart and it's, it's been great. It's been great. And I, you're surprised how many conversations you get into because probably no one's talked to that person all day, that person behind the counter, no one's talked to them all day and they might know an investor. Oh, you're in real estate. They might ask you what you do. And it's, and just leaving them with a smile because they, they appreciate that when you appreciate them. So it's yep. been super positive in my life. Especially calling someone by their name. That's wearing a name tag. Exactly. Exactly. It's like they perk up and like, Oh, somebody's noticing me. I've been doing yep. this for six hours and no one's ever, no one's even recognized that I'm a person. I'm just a transaction. And yep. so, yeah, it's super cool. And I, I encourage anyone to just try it one day and you'll see like it, uh, it's as good for you as it is for them for yep. sure. Yep. Our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Oh my gosh. Um, uh, I would probably say taking the chance to actually go out and build a business because it was very, very scary. Even though I had a very high paid, great corporate job, it's very comfortable. And I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are in that position. They're probably, you know, working a job, they get paid a lot, especially if you're in IT, you get paid a ton of money. It's probably very comfortable. There's probably some things you don't like about it, but comfort is the killer of greatness. And I didn't want to be the guy that looks back in 35 years, 40 years of working that job and saying, I could have done all that stuff. And I, so I took a chance and I took a chance to start this business and quit my job when I probably like shouldn't have quit, <laughs> but it's been the best decision that I've ever made. And so uh, it's, it's definitely been scary, but it's definitely been the thing on the other, people always talk about on the other side of fear is where all the great things are. And I, I can get, I see that now, like it was so scary to do that. But now that I'm on the other side, it's like, man, there's all these. So I continuously try to push that. What's the next thing? Do a bigger project, maybe do something that I was scared of before. Like now I'm learning to fly planes and that was scary to me before, but man, it's been so cool to do that. And so like get on the other side of fear and uh, all that's where all the cool things are. Take a chance. Comfort is the killer of greatness. That's a tweetable quote right there. Totally. Totally is. <laughs> uh, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I would probably say I really like to read about Nikola Tesla because I think his, the way that he thought was super different, super cool. And I would like to sit down with him just to, just to make sense of some of the things that we still have answers on. Like we have questions on that answers. We have questions on like, Hey, what did you mean by that? Tell me about these experience that we were running and why were, why were you running those? Sometimes I'll get down the YouTube rabbit hole late at night of Nikola Tesla videos and trying to wonder about all these things that he was talking about. And so that's probably be the guy that I would pick just because I have a super interest in some of the things that he was working on. Before the uh, car company, he was probably a very underrated inventor that a lot of people didn't know about. So I, totally. that's one great thing about Tesla is he's kind of brought a little bit of attention to somebody that's kind of been a forgotten history, historical figure. Totally. Yeah. And if anyone's into that stuff, like 
you should read about Nikola Tesla. He's super cool, super cool, underrated, I agree. Yep, yep. Well, fantastic uh, having you on the show here. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you're doing or just get connected, where's the best place we can point them? Uh, probably um, email. So it's Ruben, R-U-B-E-N at totemcapitalgroup.com and totem like a totem pole, T-O-T-E-M. Uh, that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Perfect. We'll drop that in the show notes as well as a link to your website and LinkedIn and all that. But Ruben, fantastic having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.